a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very profound. Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have Dr. Robert E. Farrell. He is a doctor of engineering. He is an author of a sci-fi book series called Alien Log, which is super cool and a lot of fun. Uh, and then he's also a lecturer. So he lectures on things uh, like... Um, physical realities of UFOs and how they work and, and the propulsion systems and things like that, uh, as well as the Nazca mummies. Um, he does some really cool breakdowns on some science bef- behind interstellar travel, uh, Noah's flood. There's some really cool stuff, how he ties historically to the Bible. And he also dips into the work of Zachariah Sitchin with the Anunnaki, with the 12th planet. Guys, this is a lot of fun. Um, Robert is a wealth of fascinating information, and we have a wonderful time in this conversation. So make sure to check the show notes for all of the ways to find him, his books, his lectures, all of those things will be down there. Right alongside those links will be the one for our website for everything else having to do with us. Um, Socials, Rockfin, uh, merchandise, all of those kind of things, guys, you can find on the website linked below. So make sure to check that out if you're interested in expanding your experience with us. So uh, without any further ado, guys, let's get to this amazing conversation. This is Dr. Robert E. Farrell. All right, ladies and gentlemen, extremely excited to welcome Dr. Bob Farrell to the show. He is absolutely incredible. You're an author, researcher. You've got some fascinating perspectives on UFOs, the Nazca mummies. We are going to have a wonderful conversation, and I'm really grateful for your time and really looking forward to this. So if you don't mind for my audience that's not too familiar with you, do you mind just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I'm a retired uh practicing engineer and a retired professor. So I was in industry for about almost over 20 years uh, designing machinery. Um, Happened to be in the plastics industry and Penn State University sent a letter out because they were starting a plastics program. I was vice president at the time. So I got the letter and wanted to know if I knew anybody that would be interested in going into academia, you know, who maybe had worked for me and took me a whole month to realize it was me. So I became a professor, and for 15 years, I I taught uh, about plastics at uh, Penn State University at the Erie campus. And when I retired, um, by then I had done quite a bit of research into UFOs, and I was convinced that they had to be propelling themselves by gravity field propulsion. So I envisioned when I retired, I would maybe take some more courses in physics and learn more about how do you produce gravitational field propulsion. Um, However, it seemed like uh, for some reason I became compelled that that I really should start trying to convince other people that uh, UFOs are for real. I was going to write a book on UFOs, but 
most of the information I had gotten out of Barnes and Noble came from the New Age section. And I, the audience I'm supposed to target are just lay people, people who are curious, and they, they generally don't go into the New Age section. So I decided uh, that I'd share my knowledge that I had acquired by writing science fiction. And I sneak the information out through the dialogue of my characters. But uh, the readers can be sure that uh, whatever the characters say is well-researched and pretty much represents the consensus of the UFO community. <clears throat> um, and so that's what I've been doing for, since I retired. Um, I began lecturing about a year after that uh, on the science behind alien encounters. And the lecture after two or three years was so well-received that I decided to put it into print. And that was the first nonfiction book that I wrote. My fiction series is called Alien Log. And people ask me, well, what does that mean? And it really, it, it's based on the fact that uh, the story starts with the recovery of a craft that crashed in Kingman, Arizona, which is pretty well documented. And um, in the recovery, the colonel who was in charge of the recovery found this artifact next to the craft and he felt it was more important than the craft and he put it in his pocket or he hid it someplace and kept it on his person and then we come to present time when he is now a general he's retiring he's he's actually in the hospital now because he's dying of cancer but he's been following the ufo scene all his life and has been told by a number of people that those people that had been abducted report that the aliens are about to make their presence known. So uh, the general then gives up the device to the president of the United States, who then commissions a colonel to put together a team to try and get this device activated and hopefully uh, allow them to tap into the, quote, cloud of the aliens and find out what's going on. And that's alien log. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion that occurs in there where the, the reader will learn a lot about ufology. Um, and I'm just finished working on uh, Alien Log number four. It's a whole series, but it involves the same characters, but they get involved in different projects that involve UFOs. So that's my science fiction. Uh, as I said, uh, I began lecturing on the science behind alien encounters. And uh, the, the first big lecture I did was actually at the University in Texas at, um, and uh, there was about 150 people that showed up. And I read in the newspapers the next day, that apparently there had been a reporter in the class, I mean, not in the class, but in the audience. And uh, he had interviewed some people. And one of the ladies he had interviewed said, well, I think this whole thing is the work of the devil. <laughs> so after that, I, I Whenever I lecture now, I explain that it's not the work of the devil. And in fact, uh, about a year or two after I gave that lecture, I happened to attend a lecture near Washington. And the keynote speaker was uh, Monsignor Corrado Balducci. He was uh, from the from the uh, he was an exorcist who came from Rome. And in fact, for several years, had been promoting the idea that there might be alien life out there. So he was a good keynote speaker. But he, he also was asked the same question during Q&A was, uh, isn't this work, this UFO stuff, the work of the devil? And he said, no. He said, God would never allow that to happen. So now I have the answer. <laughs> but uh, that, that kind of was how I got into the very first nonfiction. And uh, then 
during the research, when you get into this subject matter, you, you end up going in a lot of different directions because it's such a fascinating topic. And uh, one of the books I happened to read was by uh, Zachariah Sitchin. He's passed away now, but um, he his first book was called The Twelfth Planet. And um, he he um, was curious all his life about the roots of his uh, his religion. And so he was he went to the extent of even learning how to read cuneiform. And so he had a lot of knowledge that he'd accumulated. And he had discovered that, for instance, uh, the uh, Noah's flood was was a flood that occurred. And this was not new to, to people, but the, the the flood actually occurred in Mesopotamia. And so he spent a lot of time uh, learning about the uh, the Sumerians and uh, a lot of their folklore and myths. And uh, because he felt that uh, perhaps there was something to it. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Sumerians were the ones that invented human writing that, that we have now. And, uh, and prior to that, uh, and that was about 6,000 years ago, but prior to that, they passed down information more or less verbally. You know, I, I can imagine they had like church sessions where someone would stand up and and uh, speak about uh, what happened during the flood, that kind of thing. And that's how they carried the knowledge forward till the time uh, they finally got to the ability to write and, and create these tablets. And so Sitchin had studied all these and uh, had his own interpretation of, of what happened to the Sumerians. And one of the things he thought he, uh, he believed it was that the, the Sumerians felt that about 450,000 years ago, um, the Anunnaki, they called them the Anunnaki, came to Earth from another planet, which they called Nibiru. And um, they're the ones that actually genetically modified Homo erectus or one of the beings that existed then to create Homo sapiens about 200 or 300,000 years ago. So Sitchin put all this in his book that he published in 1976. And uh, when he was, when he mentioned the fact that the, the, the Sumerians believed that, that Nibiru was a planet that was drawn into orbit around the sun about 4 billion years ago, um, that his book was published in 1976. And if you ask an astronomer, uh, what, what about these rogue planets? And they would say, rogue planet? What's a rogue planet? They didn't know and even conjure the idea that there could be planets formed outside of our solar system, either just because they were failed stars or because they were planets that were thrown out from other solar systems. <clears throat> so, so Sitchin you know, was, was broaching this idea at a time when it was unbelievable. So he made a lot of unbelievable statements. <clears throat> and well, one of the things he said, which I believed, he felt that the Noah's flood actually occurred about 13,000 years ago as a result of the ice melting as we came out of the ice age. And uh, so I followed up on that and, and it ended up with uh, another lecture series <clears throat> called the science behind Noah's flood. And that was also popular and became a book. And I spent a whole chapter in that book discussing Sitchin's work and uh, what he predicted and talked about back when 
no one really understood. For instance, genetics in 1976 was a new topic. Uh, rogue planets, astronomers really didn't know much about them back then. We now know, and they're getting evidence now, that there may be, for every uh, for every four Jupiter-sized planets that they find outside of our solar system, there may be a rogue planet. So, and within our own galaxy, there's probably millions of rogue planets. And so, uh, all these things that Sitchin had said, which was really his interpretation of the Sumerian myths, um, have turned out to be pretty true, in my opinion. And uh, so, when I wrote the, the book, actually, when I began lecturing on the, the Noah's Flood, uh, for instance, I talked about uh, Abraham, who, was, uh, who left Ur. Everybody thought that Abraham was born in the town of Ur, which is in southern Mesopotamia just on the northern edge of what was the Persian Gulf. Actually, it was a lake back then. And uh, and then eventually, you know, migrated into Canaan. And that was my first lecture. I showed a map of that. And I said, you know, that makes sense because it shows, uh, history shows that he actually ended up further north in Canaan, up in Turkey, and, and then went down to Canaan. And that didn't make sense. I did more research. And one day I was on the Internet and I uh, – I don't know if it was a YouTube or something, but I happened to hit on a travelogue that was uh, being filmed in San Liurpa. And San Liurpa is up in Turkey. Um, and the, the guide said, well, now follow me and I will take you to the cave where Abraham was born. So I did some research into San Liurpa and um, it kind of fit in with my story of Noah's flood in that uh, uh, Noah who in, in mythology, I think, is, was actually called Upnapishtim. And um, he was supposedly found in the uh, upper uh, area of uh, the, the um, um, let's see, T Tigris River? No, the I'm sorry, the Euphrates River, and, which is in northern Turkey. Up, up where the, the the tall trees were were growing that they used for making boats and things. But anyway, <clears throat> um, and wouldn't you know, uh, San Liurpa, which some people might call Ur, is in an area where Noah, very close to where Noah supposedly uh, had uh, settled into after the flood. As in fact, in fact, it's only about twenty five miles from that area, and. Um, so and then on, on top of that, recently, when I say recently, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, they discovered a Gobekli Tepe. Some of you may be familiar with that. If you go on the Internet, you can you can actually look at pictures of it. <clears throat> and that's in Turkey. And in fact, it overlooks the plain of Haran. Now, if you remember the Bible, uh, Haran was was uh, Abraham's younger brother. Who passed away. So I visualize what happened is uh, um, Abraham, by the way, was a descendant of Noah. And in fact, there's a chart that shows how many generations, about four generations after Noah, according to the, the, the chronology that's in the Old Testament. Um, and, and so Abraham would have been, uh, like I said, about 25 miles from Noah's house and about 25 miles to get into the plain of Haran. And also there's a tradition in, in the uh, Jewish religion uh, that states that 
there was a time when Abraham actually spent and visited Noah at his home and was educated by Noah and his son. And if you look at the map, yeah, that's possible. 25 miles, that's be a day walk, you know, a day's walk, maybe a little more. And uh, so I can visualize then that what happened was Abraham's father said, okay, um, we're going to go to Can uh, Canaan. And so the whole family packed up and moved out, but they only made it about halfway through the valley of Haran when Haran died, which is why it's now called, there's a town there called Haran. There's no explanation as to what caused Haran's death, but the family stayed there. Uh, and, and Abraham was there until he was like 75, I think, when he had a calling to go to Canaan. And of course, he took Lot with him. So that kind of fits in with the Bible and it fits in with the time frame because my belief was, even though Sitchin thought that the uh, flood occurred around 13,000 years ago, I did some research and uh, I, I felt that it really occurred about 14,500 years ago. And I did that just by looking at some charts of sea level, the sea level and how it rose over a period of time as we came out of the Ice Age. And about 14,500 years ago, sea level was about 370 feet lower than it is now. And if you look at a, a map of the Persian Gulf, the deepest part of the Persian, Persian Gulf is only about 150 feet. So indeed, the Persian Gulf was a lake back then. And for, you can see where it was actually fed by four rivers, just like the Bible says. So um, about 14,500 years ago, though, there was a very sharp rise in, in the water level. And um, if you look at a map of uh, Antarctica, the, neath, the eastern edge of Antarctica faces right into the Straits of Hormuz. And at 14,500 years ago, when this the whole event started, the ice was eight miles thick along the edge, the eastern edge of Antarctica. So uh, you can imagine what would happen when that starts calving into the uh, ocean. It would create horrendous mega tsunamis, and it's that those mega tsunamis, and it was a series of them, uh, that were the genesis of the flood that ultimately carried up the Pishtim, who we call Noah today, up to basically the border with Turkey. And, you know, after surviving a flood like that, when you get out of your boat, what do you do? You go to high, higher ground, which is why he ended up in Turkey. So everything fits together. Um, so I was also curious, well, 14,500 years ago, could uh, Noah even build a boat? Did, did they know how to build boats back then? And sure enough, uh, I found some research that that uh, not only could they build boats, but uh, uh, some some people up in uh, the Europeans area managed to build boats that took them over to Greenland during that period of time. So it was possible that they built boats. Now, the, the boat I think that Noah built um, was more like an inner tube shape. You know, like when I was a kid, we used to go to the filling station and get old inner tubes and patch it. And, and that was my float. And so uh, <clears throat> that's the kind of boat that they built back then 14,000 years ago. And another thing that fits in is um, this Gobekli Tepe is, uh, of course, the, the archaeologist uh, has passed away now, but uh, he began digging there about 20 years ago. 
And he said that uh, at the time he had uncovered, I think, about three or four rings, large rings up on this plateau overlooking the plain of Haran. And he dated those about 13,000 years ago. But he said, uh, based on ground penetrating radar, that there may be a total of 20 of these. And the ones down deeper may be over 14,000 years old. So this all fits together. Also, where Noah supposedly settled in um, is now underwater. There was it's a town there. I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's underwater now because they built a dam near there. But fortunately, before the dam was built, archaeologists went in and took photographs and everything. And uh, there were some stones stood up, a couple of stones that very much resembled the center stones that appear in Gobekli Tepe. So, and, it, and the interesting, another interesting thing about the Gobekli Tepe is these, these two columns that stand up in the center of this ring of columns, which represent the deities, I think, of uh, the Sumerians, uh, are facing south. And they have anthropomorphic carvings on them that face south. And according to Sitchin, um, Nibiru, of course, would appear every 3,600 years, but because it would, would, would come in from such a far distance, something like 10 times as far as Pluto, uh, it would only be uh, viewed for maybe five or 10 years. It would be inside uh, the orbit of Jupiter. And uh, so during this event, it would be a very religious event, and uh, they probably set those statues up to be watching for Nibiru to appear, to appear because according to Sitchin and uh, also some astronomers, that uh, it should appear in the southern sky. So all these pieces fit together. And uh, that's why I, I was so impressed with the work that Sitchin had done that uh, I did de dedicate a whole chapter in my book to going through all the items that he claimed um, in his interpretation of the mythology that he claimed had happened. But anyway, that's that's that book. <laughs> that's incredible. And I, lo I love your uh, science fiction series because you, you say, you know, uh, good science fiction is based on good science. And this is something that's fascinating to me, how you apply, I guess, our human science and the physics, the understanding that we currently have to the propulsion and the ability that these craft have and these entities, the technology that they have. Because you're a real nuts and bolts guy, and I appreciate that. Uh, we can all appreciate the work that you do on that specifically. I do love also how you've tied in Zachariah Sitchin, the history in the Bible. It's a very interesting way of looking at it from a historical, um, I'm going to say nuts and bolts perspective, because it's interesting how whenever you take accounts from old, old writings, especially what Sitchin did with the Sumerian tablets, which I know are very controversial as far as his interpretation goes. But man, on this bookshelf back here, I've got a stack of Sitchin books. I've got, I think, damn near all of them. And I'm with you. They're so much fun to read. It's a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. Anytime anybody brings up Anunnaki, you've got to associate that with Sitchin. And um, I love the idea of Tiamat, or that planet in between, you know, that's the asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter that was destroyed. These kind of things are awesome. Well, yeah, and again, in that chapter, uh, I pointed out the fact that uh, astronomers are scratching their head now to try and figure out why we have so much water on Earth, because of its location where it is relative to the sun, it shouldn't have so much water. However, according to mythology, it actually <coughs> was uh, created when uh, Tiamat was was, um, was hit and, and split in two. And part half of it came down to this orbit where Earth is. So 
if you go further out from the sun, the further you go, the more water and the more ice you find. And so in the asteroid belt, for instance, Ceres is 25% water ice. And if you go even further out, like to Jupiter and, and its moons, there's a lot of water ice out there. So all that fits together. There's a lot of things, a lot of science that has been done since Sitchin wrote his book that have con has confirmed his interpretation I think of the uh, mythology, and I know there's other scientists who who are beginning to believe that when you're looking at prehistory, in other words, something before six thousand years ago, before writing was invented, that uh, that you really should take a look at mythology because um, um, they're, they're quite quite often there could be fact a lot of fact behind that mythology. Well, think about what you do with your work and other science fiction writers. You, like I said, you good science. So you're you're actually relating actual physical things into a, a fictional narrative. But this is a great way to pass on information. You know, I've talked to several folks about um, yeah things like this where they encode different actual history or science or ancient wisdom even into songs, parables, stories. And this is a great way to pass those things down. And I'm with you. I think that there's a lot more to mythology than we really think. Um, there's there's some fascinating things as far as just analogies, um, metaphors, those kind of things can be when viewed through the eyes of a literal understanding of either science, math, or history, you can really understand why they reported them in such a way. Uh, I love this topic, man. I think that your work is fascinating and this approach is absolutely awesome. So um, like I said, we're on, on this show here, we take a real broad approach on these things, but I love dipping down into the specifics of what your work has found in particular. Uh, I dig I dig your work on all of this stuff. So do you, do you mind if we get into the uh, Nazca mummies? Because I'm fascinated by that. I want to hear what you have to th say about that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, in November of 2017, uh, I attended a, a, a UFO conference in, in uh, Nevada, and uh, one of the speakers there was Jaime Masson. You're probably familiar with him. And he gave a speech, which was the first time anyone had ever even talked about these mummies. And so he showed pictures and everything and talked about them. That was the first time in the United States that that information was presented. And I happened to be there. And the thing that intrigued me was that uh, these mummies, there's, there's actually two different species. They're bipedal. Uh, they aren't, aren't really mummies in the sense that mummies have their internal organs removed. These all had their internal organs intact, but they, they were bipedal and tridactyl. And so I was starting, I began to connect there because in the Sumerian society, uh, they, for some reason, kind of hung on to this number 12, which is why we have 12 months in a year because of the Sumerians. And it's why we have two sets of 12 hours a day and why uh, angles are multiple amounts of 12 degrees uh, in the Sumerian um astronomy. And so I, I, why would they pick on 12? I mean, you hold up your hand and you got 10 figures. The logical thing is they should have picked up 10, right? What they had 12. And so I'm thinking, I wonder if the Anunnaki had, tw had 12 digits, you know, tridactyl. And, uh, and so that's why I kind of connected what Jaime was presenting with the Sumerians. <clears throat> and uh, plus in that Near that area where they found the um, the bodies, 
just south of there in Bolivia, there was there was this um, this like a pot that was found that had been buried that had cuneiform writing on it. And uh, so there was obviously some connection with Samaria and, and that area through that. Um, but anyway, that really got me interested in it. So I, 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 I latched on to Jaime and bugged him and he kept me abreast of what was happening. Uh, the the body, bodies were, were found by grave robbers uh, about the early um, 19, I mean, in, uh, 2016, I think, but may, maybe it was at the end of 2015, but it was 2016 when the bodies were presented um, to Thierry, um, to Thierry uh, I can't remember his name now, but um, it was uh, in um, Cusco. He, he ran a uh, research facility in Cusco, Thierry Jamin. He was French. And uh, he founded the the, uh, the the research area, and and so people brought things to him when they discovered them because he apparently had the ability to tell them whether they're real or they're fake. So he he was presented with these strange bodies, and he recognized they were real; they weren't fake. And uh, so he he apparently advertised them on the internet, trying to get information. And Jaime was alerted to that. Jaime Masson. And uh, so I went up and visited with him. And anyway, based on their conversations, they put together a group of uh, scientists from various areas, uh, including a team of uh, videographers from Gaia uh, to document what they did. And um, that's where they started the investigation. Uh, but because grave robbing is illegal in Peru, and uh, the bodies had to be moved from time to time. <laughs> and if you wanted to go see one, it wasn't easy. And you probably had to be blindfolded and driven into the driven into the desert to, to some mysterious place to see one. But for two years, the bodies were moved around. They were in cardboard boxes. And, and you know, it was really a disaster that they weren't well preserved because where they found them was down in the very dry region of Peru, right near the ocean where it hardly ever rains. And here they were up in, in, in Cusco at about 11,000 feet where the humidity, I guess, is normal. I was there once and the humidity seemed fine, but uh, but there was some concern about not only deterioration, but the fact that they they may be so uh, worth so much money that they would end up on the black market and disappear from science. But eventually in 2019, November, um, the, the, the university, um, it was a university that, that decided they would take the bodies in and do some research. And they had, uh, they had a conference down there, and it was in November of 2019. And that's when I went down. And uh, in my book, uh, The Science Behind Alien Encounters, I devoted the last chapter to, to the, uh, the mummies of Nazca. And uh, so there's a picture of me standing in front of one of the headless bodies. But anyway, uh, so I went down there because this was the first time they were actually in a very well-preserved place where, where they wouldn't degrade and where maybe they'd be protected from being stolen. Um, and while I was there, I, I made the comment, uh, some of the preliminary research that had been done, they had done some um, digital tomography of Maria, for instance, 
And uh, they could even take slices in tomography. You can slice through the body just like you saw on them up. And they could see feces in uh, Maria. But they had claimed that, based, that they had done um, carbon-14 data uh, dating on, on um, both of the species. But they thought based on carbon dating of, of some of her tissues that uh, she died around uh, 1,750 years ago. The, the problem is carbon dating makes the assumption that whatever you're dating spent its whole life on planet Earth and was exposed to the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 that we have here, that we know about. Um, and I said, well, why don't you do some testing of the species? Because whatever she ate probably spent its whole life here, and that would definitely give you a time frame. And if they, and as far as I know, they haven't done that. At least I don't know about it. But if that day turns out to be much different than what her tissue shows, you could calculate when she actually came to this planet because I think she's an alien. In fact, the DNA testing shows she's only about 25% human. The other species, which are also bipedal and tridactyl, are only about two feet tall. Um, and I like them, them very much to the grays that people encountered when they're abducted. And there's a lot of similarities based on my readings that, that from people who have been abducted, they report what they saw. And um, these smaller bodies, which the, the DNA matches nothing on Earth, by the way, <clears throat> uh, and they were dated to have died about 11, 1100 years ago. But there's in the computed tomography, there's no evidence that they have lungs. There's no evidence that they have a really good digestive system. Uh, their mouth is very small. There's no teeth. And so one theory was, well, they probably had a liquid diet. <laughs> but my, my feeling is, and I haven't confirmed this yet, but they, they resemble, even though they, they determined that these bodies were more reptilian than mammalian because one of them had eggs in it and the skin looked sort of reptilian-like. The bone skeleton very much resembled the skeleton of a frog. If you look at a frog, it doesn't have two bones in the arm and two bones in the leg like we do. It has a single bone. And so do these bodies, single bone, very much frog-like. And, and I, my research, and I didn't realize this until just about a year ago, after all these years that I've been alive, I didn't know that frogs could breathe underwater. And uh, they actually can uh, transpire. In other words, they can take in oxygen through their skin from the water and give off CO2 through their skin. When they're on land, they have, they have uh, lungs, but they don't have a diaphragm. But if you watch a frog, it's moving that lower jaw up and down. And what they're doing is like they'll open their nostril and move it, the jaw down, suck in air basically, close the nostrils and move it up again and force the air into their lungs and reverse the process. So, so this diaphragm under their chin is, is like our diaphragm for breathing. That's the way a frog breathes. Um, I have no idea. I didn't see any evidence of lungs in these species. Um, but I, I could imagine uh, that they may have actually gotten their nutrients through their skin, and the nutrients might have included the oxygen that they may have needed. Um, and in some of the reading, I, I, I 
can't give you a place where I read it, but I know I've read some place where some abductees have mentioned that when they encountered these greys, they were either told or somehow they they knew that these greys did not eat, that they would immerse themselves in a liquid and absorb the nutrients through their skin. And so I think that's the way the that version, the, that species actually gets their nutrients. And this is without any real evidence other than looking at these computed tomography pictures. No, I don't think we talk about how crazy frogs are um, because I've heard a lot <laughs> of interesting stuff about how um, just how they can go dormant or how they can freeze up in the winter and be totally fine. They'll thaw out in the spring and they're good. Uh, some frogs uh, will break their, I think, bone or something like that and it sticks out of their hand like Wolverine as a defense mechanism. They, you know, secrete crazy things. The sapo frog that does healing in the, in uh, South American cultures and traditions. And then you hear all of these crazy stories of upas. Are you familiar with those? Like out of place objects? You know, they'll find a hammer in 400 million year old coal that was oh, obviously yes, yes. handmade. Or, or a gear in a coal mine. Absolutely. Uh, and one right. interesting thing that kept popping up in these mines that these coal miners would go down that are millions of years old is they would break a rock open and a live frog would hop out of the thing. Have you heard any of those stories? Wow. I have not. That's now, amazing. And it's yeah. not an isolated incident. It's There has been several accounts of these throughout a long period of time where miners will be down there. They break open a rock, boom, and a live frog hops out of the thing. It's crazy. Again, I don't think we talk is. about how crazy frogs are, but if you then relate <laughs> them to some sort of being that would need to survive in very harsh environments such as space travel such as things yeah. like that then a crazy frog like uh, dna structure would be something that you'd want right it'd be pretty advantageous for survival yeah actually uh i have a, a, what i call the science behind series which is my nonfiction series uh and i i'm just about ready to launch the third one which is the science behind creation of our universe without a big bang yes but the fourth one i was in the works to talk about the science behind the amazing mummies of Nazca, Peru. You ought to look into um, that frog thing, man, and have a couple of those accounts. It's pretty interesting. But th these uh, these bodies um, so intrigued me that I folded them into my fourth novel, which is that is coming out now. It's the science behind. It's um, <laughs> it's called Alien Log Four. The subtitle is The Antarctic Affair, where um, a, a mothership uh, UFO is, is buried under a thousand feet of ice. And because it happens that when they did a, uh, a flyby with a satellite, they zoomed in, they could see evidence of cuneiform writing on the outside of the craft, which is why my characters, Wendy in particular, in my science fiction series, that team is is, in, is asked to go down and investigate these this craft. And they finally get into the craft and they, they find these small uh, aliens that, that are exactly like the, the smaller species of the ones from Peru, and they're still alive. And that craft has been buried for 10,000 years. Yeah. But they're still there and they're maintaining the ship and they were grown by the larger species that we found in Peru. Maria, they call that one, they're very human-like. But uh, so they weren't there, though. They had gone out to explore and they hadn't come back after a few thousand years. But these other ones were still there maintaining the ship. But they were never trained on how to fly it, so they couldn't take it out from under the ice, which over over a period of 10,000 years had built up and covered the craft. 
but uh, so but I actually show some of the computer tomography uh, of of these bodies in my science fiction book because I'm I'm so convinced that these are not from this planet, uh, and I'm anxious to get the information out. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll sneak it out in, into my fourth novel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think of maybe the idea that there's some sort of <clears throat> Uh, extra dimensional type of a phenomena going on here because the more I look into it the more I kind of lean on that with the all sorts of craziness and it could be all connected now one thing that may lend to that idea would be if you did have an entity that was interdimensional in a sense right that they could shift from one reality that we don't have access to um or we haven't figured out how to access yet, uh, then maybe they can draw energy from that. And that's why they're able to exist in a kind of homeostasis here. You know, this may explain, fro maybe frogs are interdimensional beings. And they're able to kind of draw a power or some sort of energy that would sustain them where we need food and water and oxygen to do that here, a very physical chemical transaction. Then they may be able to do the same thing just in a different environment away from ours that that makes them sustain their health and longevity and even live in this reality. Well, it's a fun thing. Uh, yeah. First of all, my mission this, and I don't know why I'm on this mission. I have to con confess, <laughs> I, this is not the way I thought I'd spend my retirement. Uh, my mission is to convince lay people and skeptics that UFOs are real and you better get ready for them because I think we're going to be, exposed to them more and more uh, in my lifetime, probably. But anyway, and and, to, and I, I have to be very careful. I think in order to convince people that these are real, I have to use science that people have been exposed to in high school, at least. So I don't, I don't get into interdimensional. I don't get into wormholes. Uh, and I don't get into time travel as a way to explain things. I use nuts and bolts physics that everybody's probably had in high school. And I can explain almost all the phenomena that people have seen uh, with UFOs in particular. And I, I actually was the, uh, the, the, the commencement speech speaker uh, when my daughter graduated from Penn State. And my, my speech was uh, technology past, present and future. And that was the year 2000 I gave that talk. <clears throat> and so I went back to 1950 and I traced five different technologies, computer technology, uh, medicine, transportation, energy, and communication. Um, so on medicine, I did some research and I noticed that people were living longer in 20, every 25 years. When you looked at it, people were living longer and <clears throat> And I so I, I talked to some experts at the Hershey Medical Center about aging, and I became convinced that we're going to be going on an exponential curve as far as how long we live because of genetics and things like that. Where maybe in my lifetime, if I need a no heart, they'll grow it from my own tissue. I won't reject it. Um, they'll develop uh, drugs that are tailor-made to my genetic makeup, so I won't reject those, and they'll be most effective. That kind of thing, we're on the cusp of that. And so when I came forward in chunks of 25 years, in other words, every generation I talked about in uh, 1950, this is the way a computer was, took up a whole building, you know. 1975, okay, we have a computer that sits on your desk. In the year 2000, the students are sitting there with laptops. 
when I got to the year 2050, I said, the reason your laptop is as big as it is because the computer sits on your thumbnail. It's the interface between you and the computer, the screen and the keyboard. By 2050, you will have a headband. You'll be wearing a headband and buried in that headband will be a chip that will communicate directly with your brain, which is scary because that means you're sitting you're next to someone and they're both, you're both tuned in and you're, you're, your lips aren't moving, but you're communicating. And you got to be careful what you think because they can tap into that too. But anyway, but as far as medicine, uh, I felt that, and I mentioned to the students, I said, by 2050, when you're sitting here watching your grandkids uh, graduate, the issue for society then might be uh, <clears throat> who should be allowed to die and who should be allowed to be born because people may, we might be to the point where people can live as long as they want. And so when you come to aliens, um, they probably have already got to that point a long time ago. So they live for thousands of years. And because they live so long, you know, they don't have any problem taking on a project that maybe will take a thousand years because they're going to be around for 10 or 20,000 years anyway. Uh, so I think there's, their perspective on time is much different than ours. We have this sense of urgency of getting things done within 100 years. They don't have that. You know, I love this perspective. Uh, and you think about the ages in the Bible when you talk about people living to 900 years old and things like that. You think about a technology, not necessarily a supernatural thing. And this also could explain some of the stuff that you see because I'm a big fan of the idea that there was an ancient civilization all over here that was very highly advanced. And then you look at things like a breakaway um breakaway uh, civilizations or secret space programs or, you know, things like that, then it's entirely possible that even humans on this planet that may have been genetically altered by some means or just got super advanced and then shagged ass before the Unger Dryas, like that time period where whatever happened that melted the ice caps, I agree with you. There's a lot of evidence that points to that. Um, and yeah. they could have left and then maybe come back, but they would have solved the problem of aging because yeah, if we can, and we can do it now, basically you go in, you grow new, um, either 3D print, print uh, synthetic organs, or you can grow one from tissue. And so these things we're already messing with now. So it's not out of the scope of extrapolating a little bit into the future. And I agree with you that the issue with computers and the things that they are is because of your need to interface with it, with the digits and things that we have. Exactly. Completely agree. Exactly. And you know, they're... With Neuralink. I'm sorry? With Neuralink right now. That's what, they're, that's what uh, Musk is doing, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they're already, you know, for paraplegic, uh, they're getting close to the point where they can have a robot that does all the work for them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and I mentioned 50 years, 2050 was when uh, I visualized this computer chip in a headband. Uh, in fact, it was interesting um, in my science fiction novel, and I think. It's the very first alien log, the first one. Well, one of the people in the novel, humans, is taken to a, a, a mothership that's actually in orbit out at the asteroid belt. It's a huge ship. It's, it's a, like miles. The dimensions are in miles. It's huge. Um, and they're taken to a con into a conference room. And uh, so these people show up, these aliens, and of course, they all wear white robes and you know, quite gray hair, everything, but they're wearing a gold headband, which means 
and in there is a chip and they are connected to the cloud basically so you 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 never want for an answer to any question you have because it's there it'll come to you and so so these characters are sitting around this table with this human and any questions that character asks is answered because there it is. They got it out of the cloud. Yeah, they can answer it before they can speak it because they think faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you know, uh, and you can for us when we have this ban, it may be that even you know instead of having us have mechanical cameras on our glasses that uh, to uh, or or uh, projectors to see you know. Um, our own eyes will be the camera that goes, the information that goes into our brain goes into that chip on your head and you can record it. <laughs> yeah. You know? It'll be on YouTube. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Like instantly like, Oh, I'm streaming right now. You know, um, it's, it's really <laughs> interesting, man, because yes, there is kind of a, you can, you can look at this scientifically and say, okay, well, I know that we're going to go here, especially with the trends and technology that we've got now and the direction we're going. I think 2050 is probably, a little long. I think that we'll probably have this within five or 10 years, man, um, which is crazy. Just the pace at which this stuff happens. I don't think that technology goes at such a pace that we really struggle kind of uh, philosophically and everything to catch up to it because now we're up against the AI type of thing. And, and even Elon Musk says it's a demon. And then in the other breath wants to throw a chip in your head with it. So it's interesting that it kind of moves a little bit quicker than we can really philosophically say this is what should happen, right? Because there was a lot of issues whenever you introduced the car to a horse driving society. And it was kind of so crazy. That there were a lot of issues with that transition, but eventually we made it, right? Um, but that initial shock of that is pretty pretty interesting. Something I wanted to point out about your book, and I don't know if you did this on, perfect, on purpose, your book series, Alien Log, is because of the idea that you take actual science and actual reports of UFOs and put them into a fictional narrative. But what's interesting and I think of is Captain's Log, which of course refers to Star Trek. Um, and Gene Roddenberry was reportedly to have actually put real science that the U.S. government knew about. Like apparently, and Ben Rich said this, nothing in that show was science fiction. It's all stuff we can actually do. Um, that's where they got the idea for the closing doors, warp speeds, things like that. This is also what lends to the idea that there is a breakaway civilization with some sort of technology out there or that we've been able to successfully back engineer near technology uh, just not in the public light and then they kind of put it out in books and movies and stuff like that i think some of these guys like gene roddenberry are connected or were connected uh they had insight inside information yeah him <laughs> I, kubrick. I really, yeah yeah kubrick and um uh so and how they got it, I don't know. You know, maybe when they slept or maybe they were abducted. Who knows? Or maybe the government told them. I mean, because there was a, there were pictures of them walking around together with high-level CIA operatives. And it's like, oh, okay, you guys were in the know. And walking around on movie sets, which didn't look good for the optics of the moon landing, uh, with Kubrick right. standing there. And then they had a movie set signed up. But um, I, I think the whole thing is fascinating, man. I love your approach on all of this. Uh, your your work is just awesome. I, I like the nuts Thank and bolts stuff because it really takes you down um, some really interesting interesting rabbit holes, especially when you start talking about Sitchin's work and Anunnaki's and these time scales and these, you know, glorious technological advancements with the miles long craft. And I love this stuff, man, because it is yeah. it, it when you stop thinking of it as fiction, it's a lot more fun. Well, the thing is, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of people out here who uh, around us that are skeptical still. Uh, and and my fear 
is that there are some people who, if they, if suddenly disclosures thrust upon them um, because the aliens land on the White House lawn or something like that, they may be some um, some groups of people that may just decide it's time to commit suicide and go to heaven or whatever. You know, that's been done before. Yeah. And, it has. We have to ease people into that. And that's what I'm trying to do is ease them into the belief that there there are beings out there uh, who not only are technologically far more advanced than we are, but perhaps not only that, but even uh, religiously, they, they may have uh, um, a, a deeper religious background, if you will. Um, but th- in order to convince the skeptic who, skeptics who's who you know read about all oh, this ufo just came here and then it just blanked out and disappeared or reappeared and did all um i i felt that it's necessary to be able to explain all that that it, it can be explained and but the key is is gravitational field propulsion uh and the advantages that it offers and the things that it will allow uh and so like I said, when I retired, I wanted to use some research in that because when you think about gravity, you immediately think, well, you got to have a big mass to have a big gravitational field. But as it turns out, Einstein's equations show that no, there's an interconnection between electromagnetic fields and gravitational fields. And in fact, he knew that because he predicted that uh, electromagnetic field in the sense of a, a light wave would be deflected by a gravitational field. And so my thinking is, well, then it can go the other way. You can maybe somehow by manipulating electromagnetic fields, create gravitational fields. And I think that's exactly what they do. And in my book, um, The Science Behind Alien Encounters, I give some evidence of, of, first of all, how it's theoretically possible to create gravity. Second, I show how it's actually been created through serendipity in some cases, but also in the laboratory where they're researching it. And um, so I believe that these craft are propelled by gravitational field propulsion. And um, when I was in industry, uh, occasionally I'd get involved in uh, failure analysis. Uh, The machines that we designed, one of the modes of failure was metal fatigue. And unfortunately, metal fatigue takes a while. So you could have a thousand of your products out there and five years later, they start breaking. And so you got to be real careful about metal fatigue. But what what I did, what I what you could do or anybody is is you lay out all the facts. You go out and you gather information about that failure or whatever you're trying to investigate and you lay it out and it will tell you the story. It'll tell you what happened. And so in the case of UFOs, I don't have access to any broken UFOs, any other crashed. I can't put my hands on them or even look at anything. But there is so much evidence in the form of witness uh, evidence that people who have seen them, and these are trained observers, they'd be pilots or uh, radar observers, but there's really credible um, testimony, if you will, as to what these things can do. And so what I did is I just wrote down all the things people see them do and figure out now what hypothesis would allow that to happen. And the hypothesis that fits that best is that they are using a gravitational field as a means of propulsion. And not only 
positive, but a negative field. And uh, you hear people talk about, well, they're using anti-gravity. Well, that's actually a, the wrong term to use because anti-gravity would imply that that only works in the presence of a gravitational field. Yes. And uh, they actually are creating gravity and not only a positive gravity, but there's evidence of a, of a negative gravity, a repulsive gravity. And the evidence, I can give you a few cases that prove that. Um, there's some photographs that appeared in a book uh, that uh, I, it's, I mentioned it in my book, um, a UFO taking off out of a field. And uh, it's a classical UFO, you know, this shape. And it's about one diameter off the ground at the time, but it's kicking up dust. And the dust is going into a pattern around this craft underneath it. But directly underneath it, the dust is excluded because the gravitational field is a negative field is lifting the craft. It's also excluding, excluding the dust particles. So that's, that's kind of evidence for a negative field. The other thing, um, there's been cases where people have come across uh, an area where uh, they knew the UFO had just been hovering and it left. And it was a shallow pond and it was frozen. And even though it might have been wintertime, the, the room, the temperature was was above freezing. And so how is it that, they, that UFO froze that that pond? Well, again, that can be explained if it's hovering over a body of water with a negative field under to keep it buoyed up. That negative field is like low pressure. It's excluding everything. And as the water molecules come off the surface of the water, they're excluded. In other words, it's evaporating very rapidly, carrying away heat. And, and so the remaining water is getting colder and colder and colder, and eventually it freezes. And so, again, that's evidence for a negative field. The other thing, if I were designing a craft that I wanted to be able to go at 3,000 miles an hour without creating a shock wave, <clears throat> uh, I would project a, par a little bit of a negative field directly in front of my craft to forewarn the molecules ahead of me way in advance so they have time to get out of the way and I wouldn't have a shock wave. And if I decided I want to go into some water, I do the same thing. I, put, I have the water move out of the way as I come through it because these UFOs have been seen to go hypersonic speeds without shock waves. They've been seen to go into the water and out of the water with ease. That's evidence of, a, again, a negative field that they create around their craft. <laughs> And the fact that they have isolated uh, environments or uh, an atmosphere within them as well. And that's why they can make these 90 degree right hand turns and not end up a splat on the wall. Right. They have a, a basically they adjust the environment within them. And this could also be, be due to the fact that they're creating this negative field. The physics that we understand are pretty yeah. tricky when you try and apply them to what we would build an aircraft to do under our current understanding. It's fascinating, well, man. Uh, I, 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 in my lecture, I give it a thought experiment. <clears throat> I, I have a volunteer agree to be aboard a nose cone of a V-2 rocket. <laughs> uh, and then I give them um, a uh, walkie-talkie or whatever it means so we can talk, communicate. <clears throat> and I light the fuse and off they go. And I start talking to them about what they're experiencing. And they say, well, right now I'm being pulled down into my couch and my G-meter says 4Gs. And I'm watching and I'm all of a sudden the flame sputters out and the, the rocket's coasting up. And I say, well, now what's happening? And they say, well, now I'm floating, tend to float out of my couch and the G meter says zero and I'm watching and now the craft is falling. And I say, okay, well, so what's happening now? 
oh, nothing's changed. My G meter says zero. I'm free falling. I uh, have no sensation of acceleration. But I, but I said, wait a second, you're accelerating at 1G. If we did this experiment on Jupiter, you would be accelerating at 40 Gs, but you wouldn't know it, you're free fall. So if you can create this gravitational field propulsion, the occupants of the craft are affected by the same gravity field and you free fall everywhere you go. It's so just you like climb the, into your, huh? Par, oh, just like the parabolic flights that they do for NASA testing, where they yeah, go up and yeah. then they simulate zero gravity, but it's done no, in you, our you atmosphere. Could, <laughs> well, crazy. you wouldn't be floating around because you're smart enough if you can do this kind of craft that you have a little bit of residual positive G to keep you glued to the floor. Yeah, at least on <laughs> the floor in around. your seat, you know? Yeah, yeah you, you walk around, you, you, you kind of look through the window. And uh, in fact, in my science fiction book, um, the humans who are investigating, they're talking to these little characters uh, and they, they do it by means of a computer that can translate. But anyway, um, they're, they're asked about, well, how did you go from one place to another? And they said, well, we don't know the, the, the makers, they call them the makers. These are the bigger ones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the makers, uh, they just plug in a location and, and, and we're there. And that would be the way it would be because you would have no sensation you ever moved because you're free, you know, the whole craft, everything, you and everything just is displaced from one place to another. And now you're there uh, and in very short time, because if you recall some of the evidence uh, by the Navy pilot, but uh, back in 2004, it was, he was off San Diego, you know, and he had this UFO come right up to his craft and all of a sudden it, gets, it was gone. Yes. Yes. But yet the radar showed the same craft a few seconds later, 60 miles away. And I did a quick calculation. That UFO accelerated at, at about a thousand Gs away and it, it moved away so fast that your brain could not react to it. He was just gone. Um this is so cool. I, yeah. <clears throat> everything about this, man, I absolutely adore and love. Um, we're going to go ahead and call it here, but I think that you're wonderful. You are invited on any time. Um, and I will, of course, link all the ways to find you down in the show notes. Um, man, keep keep moving forward, dude. We've got a lot more of your story that we need to hear. So please come back on any time, brother. I really appreciate you. Well, if we have one, can I have one more minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, please go ahead. Well, I, I just because I'm really curious to find out. The government is in a hard spot right now. Uh, people are becoming wise to these trickery things that, that oh, well, you know, uh, there's, there's nothing, that, there's no harm in these these craft. Uh, there's no evidence that there's anything to worry about. So just, you know, move along, right? <laughs> Out of Star Wars. There's nothing to see nothing here. To see just here. move yeah. along. <laughs> <laughs> so, but here they are. Now they're caught with these photographs. Right. But Navy photographs and probably some close up photographs that we haven't seen yet. They can't they can't. What are they going to say about that? Uh, you know, I, I've been looking at the different options. If I were them, number one, I would say, well, you know what? You got us. We've developed this and that's our technology. And, and so that's not a winner for them either, because I'm going to call my congressman and say, look, if you have this technology, why am I getting on an airplane and taking 14 hours to go? From here to, to Innsbruck. Yes. When I could be there in two minutes if if you just let let the aircraft industry have that technology. So that's one scenario. The other is they say, okay, well, you know what? Actually, they're designed and built on another planet by aliens. 
you know, okay, well, if that's true, why don't you make a deal with them so that we can have these craft also so that we don't have to spend 14 hours to go from Arizona to Innsbruck. This is a no-win situation for the government. And the only answer they could ever come up with is, well, we have to investigate some more. And that's it. I, I think it's like you. I think it's either that they know exactly what, what it is or they have no idea. Uh, oh, they um, know exactly what it is. And I kind of <laughs> lean more towards that as well. Or they know what they've told them that it is. I, I don't think that they're also that forthcoming on everything. Like they don't need to be that transparent. So why would they? They just tell you a little bit about what's going on and then let you think whatever you want. But either way, uh, it's fascinating to me, man. I love this topic. I, I am <laughs> just been blown away by UFOs and the study of them. And I love the way that you connect all the pieces historically with the Bible, Zachariah Sitchin's work, which again is historic in nature because it's ancient Sumerian. And I like your approach on this, brother. Uh, you do wonderful Thank you. work. Yeah. So, um, like I, I said, all, all the ways to find you will be down there, man. You have an open invite, you are soul tribe. So just come back anytime you'd like, man. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you for having me. Incredibly grateful for Bob Farrell for his time. He did an awesome job, and he is a lot of fun to talk to. So make sure to check the show notes, guys, for all the ways to find him, his books, his lectures, all of that. He's an interesting dude. We'll have him back on for sure. Much more to talk about with him. So uh, as far as this show goes, guys, you can find us at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where links to all of the socials will be. That is linked down in the show notes. So you could, guys can actually just go down directly in the description right next to Robert's uh, work and contact information. That will be the link to the website that's also where you can find um Vinny the saint whose music is playing right now who it's absolutely awesome and we love that uh he does this stuff for us so go check him out for sure really cool dude in person and just an awesome creator of music so uh check that out um go out into your week this week guys uh just be nice to everybody that you come across animal entity human it doesn't matter just be cool um also uh pick up a piece of litter of course it's a pain in the ass don't litter in the first place but pick it up if you see it you know be that example be the change you wish to see in the world right um, also, buy a coffee or a meal or a bottle of water, something simple for someone in line behind you or adjacent to you. It doesn't matter, but it makes a big impact. Uh, get out of the left-hand lane, of course. And then, of course, go out into this beautiful place, this planet, whatever the hell this thing is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>